This is an ABC podcast. Across Australia, you're listening to Breakfast on RN. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. There's been a sharp rise in the number of Australians delaying seeing a GP, filling a prescription or seeing a mental health professional because of the cost. The findings are in a report from the Productivity Commission and come on the eve of a national cabinet meeting to discuss possible changes to Medicare and the health system. Rachel Mealy reports. As GPs complain they're being forced to ditch bulk billing, the impact of mounting out-of-pocket costs for patients is stark. The number of Australians who delayed or avoided seeing their doctor because they couldn't afford it has soared by almost 50% in the past year. Professor Steve Robson is the president of the AMA. I think it's obvious to all Australians that our health system has been under enormous pressure. This has been made worse by the COVID pandemic, uh, which is ongoing, but it is now at absolute crisis point and many of the most vulnerable Australians uh, around the country are having difficulty accessing care when they need it and in an affordable way. The Productivity Commission report reveals 3.5% of people postponed or skipped GP visits in the past 12 months because of the cost, up from 2.4% the previous year. The rate was highest in Tasmania. We know that many places around the country are in crisis and Tasmania paints a particular example uh, to which the whole country should look. Uh, Tasmania is telling us what the entire country is going to look like very soon. So we need to deal with this so that the crisis that's engulfing Tasmania and the patients who are seeking care does not filter out to the entire country. And it's not just visits to the GP being put off. Almost a quarter of people delayed seeing a psychologist, psychiatrist or mental health professional because they couldn't afford it. While in some parts of the country, people have been languishing on waiting lists for public dental care for more than four years. And more than five in 100 people who needed a prescription for medication delayed or avoid filling it because it was too expensive. If patients are unable to get medications uh, that they need to treat conditions, they are going to get worse. So all of these have a multiplier effect. There's also an insight into the pressure emergency departments in public hospitals are facing. Just 65% of patients in the emergency triage category who should be seen within 10 minutes were seen on time, down from 71% the previous year. Tasmania was the worst performer, New South Wales the best. Dr Claire Skinner is the president of the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine. That triage category includes people with things like heart attacks, strokes and injuries from road accidents. It's really problematic that they're not, they're not being seen on time because obviously that can result in delays to their treatment and also ongoing complications. Unfortunately, we're also seeing that these people, once they've finished their assessment in the emergency department, are also experiencing unacceptable delays to be admitted to hospital and receive the inpatient care they need. She says addressing basic health care at the GP level will ease the pressure on emergency departments. Look, as a clinician and also as a parent and a citizen, I know that health care is getting more difficult to navigate. 
It's expensive. It's hard to coordinate. Our system is increasingly fragmented and complicated for someone seeking care. The emergency department is the social safety net. It's there open 24-7, but we shouldn't be relying on it for routine care. We know that people have better outcomes when they have a longitudinal relationship with their general practitioner. National Cabinet will meet tomorrow and state and territory leaders will consider a report about how to strengthen Medicare as they discuss how to improve the health system. That report from Rachel Mealy and Stephanie Dalzell. The Albanese government says it's reached its goal of having 35,000 Pacific Island workers in the country six months early. Farmers say the Pacific Worker Scheme's helping to ease labour shortages, but there may be some changes coming to the program to ensure minimum pay. Oliver Gordon prepared this report. After a long day picking broccolini in South Australia, migrant worker Carlo Waimini winds down by singing with his mates. Yeah, yeah, when we play music, we feel like at home. He says he's happy with how much he's earning, most of which is heading back home to Vanuatu. The money that we work here in Australia for sometimes we pay for school fees and we build a house, a new houses. Sometimes we buy a new vehicle and a fishing boat. Carlo Waimini is employed under the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, known as PALM. Farmer Graham Pitchford is his employer. And we grow broccolini and a variety of lettuces. Workers are on one to four year placements, and while Graham Pitchford doesn't think the scheme has alleviated all the labour shortages in the sector, it's worked well for him. Currently in our harvest crew, we've only got three Australians uh, working uh, out of about 40, 40 to 50 harvest crew. He's glad the program exists, but says he's had to make adjustments as his business becomes increasingly reliant on foreign workers. We have um, seasonal workers, a a newish group of seasonal workers um, added to our older group in the last 12 months, uh, and that has helped. But what it's meant is we've had to buy a house um, to accommodate them. The Albanese government had promised to raise the number of Pacific workers from 24,000 when it was elected to 35,000 by June this year. But it's already hit that target. The Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Pat Conroy, says that during his visits to the Pacific region, support for the program is strong. The dominant theme is uh, tremendous enthusiasm for this scheme. Like The, the 35,000 workers cumulatively are sending back around 500 million Australian dollars a year to their economies. They are literally lifting their communities out of poverty and they're getting skills. There are critics. While the Pacific workers have the same rights and conditions as Australians, unions claim some Pacific workers have been shortchanged by expensive accommodation costs. Pat Conroy has flagged the federal government may soon implement minimum take-home pay requirements. That's an initiative that we're exploring at the moment so that workers understand truly that after the deductions, this is the absolute minimum amount of money that they're going to take home. Farmer Graham Pitchford backs that idea. Yeah, that's fair. I think um, it's not really an issue for us. We we have um, good continuity of work, um, plenty of work for, for our workers, and so we never have that issue of, um, of not having enough work for them and them not being able to pay for accommodation or anything. So, yeah, our workers bring home plenty of money. His employee, Carlo Waimini, agrees. Oh, yeah, it's more better than Vanuatu. A lot or a little? A lot. The vast majority of workers from nine Pacific Island countries and Timor-Leste are being employed in Queensland. That report from Oliver Gordon and Kat Sullivan. 
During recent weeks, the nations watched the Alice Springs community grapple with ongoing social problems as assault and property crime continue in the outback town. The Prime Minister and the Northern Territory Chief Minister are meeting today to discuss what more can be done after being handed an interim report about the situation. There are also members of the community who are making a difference and setting, setting young people up for better futures. Samantha Johnshire prepared this report. When I was younger, I used to fight a lot, wrong crowd and stuff, and um, just growing up, I had to prove myself. Meet 14-year-old Arnold Baird. When I turned about 11, I came down to Uncle. He's a regular at Arnda Boxing Academy, named for the traditional owners of Alice Springs. When I came to training, and it got me out of a lot of that stuff, because I was busy, you know, I could say I had training. But, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Where do you want to take boxing? Oh, I want to go pro. The academy is run on a volunteer basis by Arnda Man and former boxing champion Jason Lord. Every day, kids come in and work with volunteer coaches to hone their skills and find a home away from home. Boxing just has a natural way of helping people out, and um, there's a lot of kids that tend to fall through the cracks, and they all end up in places like this. And, and you know, we help keep them, you know, above water and, and you know, wanting to stay in school and, and do good things. It's a holistic approach. He says the gym's trainers are also mentors, here to talk with young people about what they're going through. One of those trainers is Nick Sheehady, whose day job is teaching. Um, I think when the kids come, they're treated with obviously love and care, but obviously there's a bit of tough love too in the sport of boxing, but the kids learn respect just for themselves, the community, obviously the gym, discipline, training hard, so... Uh, learning, you know, not to, yep, I guess, make nothing. rash decisions Please as we're kind of seeing. Make room, guys, make room. Jason Lord says the adults can empathise with the young boxers. Look, we've got other mentors in here that um, have led a life like that, grown up themselves, and being able to chat about, you know, being good boys and snapping out of it and what's best. And anyone is welcome. The gym has become a regular part of after-school programs for some First Nations students, and the community's only supported accommodation for young people on bail brings its kids here too. The gym has received funding from private donors, the Alice Springs Town Council, and a youth service in town. Jason Lord says funding grassroots programs like his for the long term could help turn the tide on the town's rising crime rates because it's reaching the kids who need it most. Um, some good young fellows and some of those guys, are some of the ringleaders, about you know, what's happening in the streets and stuff. It's an environment where you can feel safe. Um, but yeah, if they're walking in, they're like any other kid, they just love it. As for teenager Arnold Baird, most afternoons after school, you'll find him there. Um, it's like family. I'll say that a lot. I know I'm well looked after. It's probably the best gym I've ever went to. Teenager Arnold Baird ending that report from Samantha Johnshire and Pat Anderson, a member of the Voice Referendum Working Group, will be Patricia Carvelis's guest on RM Breakfast shortly. Right now on AM, it's 21 past seven. The Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister visited Australian troops training Ukrainian soldiers in the UK. 10,000 Ukrainian troops have now been trained there, but this is the first time the, that Australian soldiers have been involved. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane was there for AM. 
Right, so all those little safety precautions you might take about prodding your way out and finding the safe zone. At a military base at a secret location in the south of England, Australian and British troops are training Ukrainian soldiers in a five-week combat course aimed at helping recent recruits to the army help push Russian forces out of their country. An Australian officer who can't be named said that being involved in the training was a privilege. I think for me, just seeing them coming in as civilians, coming off the street and giving them that training and that awareness and confidence to go back out to Ukraine and to fight, uh, that's something really special to me. And seeing the coalition working together and doing that in a way which means we're, we're really empowering these people to go and fight for their, their freedom in their country. The Foreign Minister Penny Wong said it was humbling to meet the Ukrainian soldiers who would soon return to their country and go to the front line. I've had moving moments before talking about this issue and I've met with members of the Australian uh, Ukrainian community. Uh, but to be here uh, and to speak with uh, those brave Ukrainians who have come here in order to learn better how to defend their country uh, is profoundly humbling. While Ukraine welcomes Australia's help in training its troops, in private they're asking Australia for more military equipment to be urgently sent to Ukraine. They want more Bushmasters, more armoured personnel carriers, even tanks. It's now more than three months since Australia made its last big announcement on military aid. In that time, the Brits have made a further four announcements, including commitments to send tanks, anti-aircraft guns and missiles to Ukraine. At a media conference, the Defence Minister Richard Miles defended Australia's contribution. Uh, I don't think anyone would say that of the contribution that Australia has made. Um, there's an ongoing question of, of balancing the support that we provide Ukraine um, and ensuring that we maintain um, our own capabilities in, in Australia uh, for our own national purposes. But it's worth remembering that Australia is one of the largest non-NATO contributors to the effort in Ukraine. Defence Minister Richard Miles ending Steve Kinane's report. The federal government is being urged to embark on a range of unpalatable economic reforms to pay for massive spending already baked into the budget. The International Monetary Fund has targeted an overhaul of tax and spending programs, including the Stage 3 tax cuts and the funding of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. For more about this, I spoke with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, the IMF's put some pretty big challenges on the table for Treasurer Jim Chalmers. What are they? Well, Sabra, the IMF is uh, suggesting the sort of reforms that could be poison for either side of politics, especially given the cost of living pressures in every household. Things like raising the goods and services tax and broadening the base, winding back capital gains tax breaks when people sell the family home, and reviewing the controversial Stage 3 personal tax cuts that favour higher income earners which during the election campaign, both Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese said they wouldn't be tampering with. Also, how to pay for the NDIS is another massive challenge as the $35 billion cost continues to balloon every year. Providing critical support to people with disabilities is part of Australia's economic fabric, but the IMF is suggesting it needs to be means tested or there should be co-payments to ensure it's financially sustainable down the track. The IMF also wants to see ambitious tax reform, getting rid of stand, stamp duties in states and replacing them with property taxes and doing something about bracket creep. But we do know major tax reform is something that both Labor and coalition governments have in the past put in the too hard basket. 
So then what are the chances of seeing any of those ideas in this year's budget or any other? Well, Sabra, the uh, Prime Minister has already ruled out raising the goods and services tax. And of course, back in 2019, Labor ruled out plans to wind back capital gains tax breaks for property investments and shares. But the suggestions from the IMF do give uh, Jim Chalmers the green light to consider some tough options and the opportunity to manage expectations ahead of the May budget, which is where the rubber really hits the road for significant budget repair. And preparing for softening economic growth down to around 1.5% this year, which is something the IMF backs, slightly higher unemployment, with the IMF seeing a narrow path towards avoiding a recession in Australia from surging inflation and higher interest rates around the world. Peter Ryan. So far this summer, 52 people have drowned. While Royal Life Saving Australia is urging swimmers to be vigilant, it's also suggesting that adults who can't swim very well have lessons until they're feeling more confident in the water. Stephanie Smale prepared this report. Okay, so we're going to get straight into it today. In a public pool at Ipswich, west of Brisbane, Susma, who's originally from Nepal, is learning how to swim. I've been in Australia for over 10, 12 years, so, and I know it's water everywhere, and you want to get in there. And what was it like starting the lessons? Um, at first it was nerve-wracking, but um, knowing there's someone behind you and they're there to supervise and help you learn and grow, that gives me a peace of mind. Remember, you want to break the water. So you want to... Glenda, who wants to learn so she can swim for exercise, is one of Susma's six classmates. What sort of things have you picked up so far? Probably the breathing, which was what I haven't been able to do. Like, to not breathe too long till you have to gulp and take in a water instead of air. Senior Royal Life Saving Society Education and Training Officer Beverly Newton is leading the lessons. We've got people that are quite young in their 20s right up to their 70s, 80s and they come for a variety of reasons. So the older people tend to come because they supervise the grandchildren. She explains teaching adults to swim can be complex. Adults usually take a little bit longer than children actually because they've usually got some inbuilt fears. And how do you overcome that? The instructor needs to be very patient and everything needs to be done at that person's particular skill level and learning level. Um, once they feel comfortable in the water, then everything comes to a little bit naturally for them. This group is doing an hour lesson for five days in a row this week, but they'll be encouraged to find other lessons and keep practising. Royal Life Saving Research Manager Stacey Pigeon says most adults need months of practice to build up their skills. We did see a drop-off after that sort of nine or ten lessons, um, which is a shame because we see that, you know, people are starting to build on those fundamental skills, but it's still not quite enough for adults to be fully confident or have the same uh, skills that we expect of children. There are a number of uh, barriers that are in place for adults to be taking swimming lessons. One of them is cost. Uh, but also things like uh, transport. She warns that adults who've just done the basics aren't necessarily going to be safe. So we do strongly encourage adults to continue, if possible. Nice ticket! Beautiful! Glinda says finding adult lessons that suit her schedule at the right price can be tricky. But after another successful lesson, 
She's committed to keep practising. Just learning that those extra bits makes it a little bit harder, getting everything together in hands and legs together even more. So exhausted, but good. <laughs> you looked really confident. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Adult swimming student Glenda ending that report from Stephanie Smale. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Elaine. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.